I want to ask you a question this morning. Are there things that you've done in your life, maybe when you were younger in your marriage, when money was a little tight, that you just really regret? Maybe, maybe it was some of the, the foods that you ate when, when the, the bank account was slim, but you wanted to feed your family. Um, I think in the deep south, we could probably think of some things that we've put in our bodies that are a lot cheaper, uh, but probably not very good for us, not very healthy. As I think about that this, this week, I was thinking um, how I regret eating SpaghettiOs. You guys remember SpaghettiOs? This, this can of circular noodles soaking in tomato sauce. Toma- SpaghettiOs are very offensive to me. I'm offended by them because I'm an Italian. And for, for me to consider SpaghettiOs in the same name as the word spaghetti is very offensive. Because, see, I've tasted real spaghetti. Like my grandfather came over from Italy, from a small little town called Noto, Italy. He came with his parents who could not speak English. And through the generations of my family, they passed down a real recipe of spaghetti sauce and, and, and the way to properly fix it and passed it down from generation to generation. My grandmother learned it. My, my sister and, and, and we began to learn it. And they've passed that down to my wife and my other siblings and their families. And so it's just spread. And so we have tasted the difference so that SpaghettiOs is a joke to us. We've tasted the real thing. And so I regret that, that I ever put a can of SpaghettiOs in my body. And I know that sounds pretty trivial and, and maybe silly this morning. But I, I do want to relate that this morning to our message because I believe that there is a problem in the church where pastors get complacent in serving their people biblically shallow, theologically lacking spaghettios in their sermons instead of this theologically rich, piping hot plates of doctrinal truth. My aim as a preacher is that hopefully that you leave the table each week full of God's word, that you don't leave hungry for more. And this is where I cover your prayers because I want to be a balanced preacher who does not overload your plate each time you come to the table and yet still give you a healthy portion of you wanting more. I would also say that there's a problem within the church because the people in our churches today get so complacent with, the, with knowing the basic principles of the faith instead of diving deep into rich theological matters that they would be happy with just SpaghettiOs. Don't give me anything really deep. I've worked hard all week long Please don't try to challenge me to think any deeper. My, my brain is exhausted. I just want to come and, and, and sit and, and uh, accumulate great rewards in heaven if I can. But please don't make me think. Well, as you have probably picked up by now, that's not the type of church that we are. 
we want to encourage you to not be complacent with lackluster, lack of nutritional value type of sermons, but that you want to be fed with deep theological truth. And let me promise you that for the next two weeks, that's what you're going to get. As I was studying the next passage in our study through the life of Jesus in John chapter 12, I came across the great doctrine of reprobation. And as I was studying that and preparing that for this week, I realized that it would be unwise for me to teach reprobation without teaching the sister doctrine of election. Because you really can't separate, <laughs> separate election <laughs> and reprobation. I just made up a word. You can't separate those two. They are wed and married together. So this morning, we are going to look at the great glory of the doctrine of election. Now, during my short ministry on earth, I've realized that this is very controversial among believers. And so I want to tread very carefully and yet truthfully to what the scripture teaches. I'm not going to present you some man-made idea today. I just want to teach you what the word of God says. And I hope you come away with understanding as I have many years ago. When I was in seminary, I heard the term election uh, being discussed among many people in my seminary classes and at the lunch table and thought for a moment that this was a really political seminary. Coming to realize that election was actually a doctrinal truth that I had no idea, had never heard anything about growing up in the church for many, many years. It didn't take me long to realize that uh, that doctrine was very controversial, especially among those that, that I went to school with. And it was in my theology class with uh, one of my favorite professors, Dr. Mahoney, that I began to listen and, and hear these truths more deeply flowing out of the scripture. And it was there that the mental wrestling match began in my own life and heart. And as I wrestled with these doctrines, I began to see that the doctrine of election was not uh, just some man-made truth that some people had said, but that it flows throughout all of scripture from Genesis to Revelation. That it wasn't something even just a theology of Paul or a, a theology of, of Peter, but it was a, a theology of Jesus that he taught these very truths. And, and then even in the Old Testament, we see these beautiful pictures of God's electing grace and mercy on people who do not deserve it. And so I, I want us to see this morning and understand this doctrine more clearly. And so I want to begin with a definition that, that we will kind of adhere to this morning. And I would describe election as the predetermined act of God before the foundation of the world to rescue certain peoples from his wrath against sin through the redemption of Jesus Christ, choosing to know them intimately through unconditional grace, not by any merit or work accomplished by those chosen and assembling them into a living body called the church in order to present them to his son as his glorious bride for all eternity to the praise of his glorious grace. 
Now, what's troubling to me and what was troubling to me in seminary is I asked myself, why is a Southern Baptist high? I'd never heard of this before. I remember having a conversation with my father of the very same thing. My dad said to me, Nathan, I've been a, a, a Christian for over 20 years. I've been in Southern Baptist churches. Why have I never heard this doctrine? And I was, I was honestly able to say, I don't know, Dad. It's in the Baptist faith and message. It's in the very documents of the Southern Baptist church. It reads, election is the gracious purpose of God, according to which he regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man and comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and his infinitely wise, holy, and, un and unchangeableness. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. And of course, that great and true uh, profession or resolution obviously flows from scripture and so we don't want to just build our beliefs upon the creeds of the faith we want to we want to build them upon God's word so turn to Ephesians this morning Ephesians chapter 1 we're going to look at verses 1 through 6 focusing really on verse 4 and 5 and 6 Paul writes, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Paul begins in verse 3 and ends in verse 6 with the idea of being blessed. That the blessings that we receive in Christ as his people are the spiritual blessings he calls in the heavenly places. These spiritual blessings he continues to tell us are the redemption that we have in Christ, the adoption as sons, the incorporation into the body of Christ, the church, all these things are spiritual blessings. And we would all affirm this morning that what we have, we have in Jesus. We have from Jesus because of Jesus, not because of ourselves. Our salvation, our adoption, our redemption, our unity and, and inclusion into a body of Jesus, of, of the body of the church of Jesus Christ, all these things are gifts from God. So those are the blessings that we receive in him. And so what Paul is doing is he's starting with the end and then he's tracking back to the beginning before he gets to the end again. The end is the blessings that we are given but what is the reason for those blessings? What is the reason? It is the, the pure, unadulterated, beautiful, loving election of God. 
In verse 4, he says, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God's election is threaded throughout the revealed word of God, starting in eternity past and demonstrated throughout biblical history. We see it in the Old Testament as, as God chose Abraham not because he deserved to be chosen to make a great nation, And in choosing Israel as the nation among all nations, he chose them not because they deserve to be chosen. He chose them in love by his grace. We call that a theocratic election. It it was not an election to salvation. It was an election as a nation. It was a choosing upon them that God had determined to reveal his glory. But our discussion this morning is on a salvific election. It's an election by which we are saved by the grace of God. He chose us. It's a sovereign act of the creator of the universe to save those whom he planned to save by the atoning death of his son. And it says that as he chose, he chose us. He's talking to the Ephesians as people belonging to God. He's not, particu- he's not speaking particularly to just the Ephesian, Ephesian church. He's not saying, I chose you, Ephesian church. He's saying, I chose you as those who received, or God, God chose you as the ones who received the spiritual blessings because you are in Christ. So as this letter applied to the Ephesians, it applies to all who believe in Christ. What we don't see is it says he did not say that even as he chose all in him. Because we know that scripture uh, does not teach that, that there is a, a, a universal people of God, but there is a particular people of God those that are receiving the blessings. One of the greatest mysteries of all of Scripture is the fact that God does not choose all to be saved. That's, the, that's probably the greatest wrestling that we would experience is, is God, why is it that you don't save all people? But really the, the question that we really should ask is, God, why do you save anybody? Why do you save any of us? We're all deserving of your wrath and and your justice. And so why is it that you pull any of us from the fire? Because we don't deserve it. And God clearly does not save everyone. He saves some for his glory. And let's be real clear that we don't think of God as some miner swinging his axe in deep in a cave who stumbles upon this beautiful gem buried in the dark black rock. Oh, look at this, this worthy, valuable um, gem that I found that, that within itself is value and worth. Yes, we are worth great things to the Lord, but in the same sense, we are enemies of God and we, we, are, we are not something that God stumbles upon and discovers. God chooses us. And he doesn't choose us because we have some intrinsic value and worth for him. Oh, well, this person's going to be great in the kingdom of God, so let me choose him and use him for my glory. No, he takes vile, worthless sinners, those who have no value for his kingdom, and he gives them value. He gives them grace, and he gives them gifts, and he uses 
the most vilest, he uses the Apostle Paul's. He uses the Peters. He uses the Nathans. He uses whomever he chooses for his glory. Because we are the us in verse 4. All of God's people are the us. And we are the us because God has chosen to save us. We don't know exactly who the us are in the world. We can't go out into the world and go, I'm looking for the us in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4. We're going out in the world and we're sharing the gospel and we're leaving the us up to him. They're his us. They're his people. And so we as, as people who submit ourselves to what the scriptures teach, we understand that the us are the elect of God, those whom he chose before the foundation of the world. And we know that as election teaches us that the people that he has chosen will come to him. I think John chapter 6 verse 37 is one of the greatest passages that teach the doctrine of election and the, the doctrine of the responsibility of a human to choose Christ. It says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. There the Father is giving a people to the Son. He is gifting this bride, the church, to his Son. Those chosen before the foundation of the world. And yet those people whom are given to Christ will come to him. It's this beautiful picture. But we have to be careful. Because throughout history this doctrine has leaned too far to each side too far to the human responsibility so that the, the doctrines became uh, this idea that, that there was a, an innate goodness in us, that we would choose Christ, the, the, that, the, that the, the act of redemption would be uh, this, this great opportunity, but that we had to reach out and grab it. And the question became, well, how do we reach out and grab salvation? And the doctrine became, well, the goodness within you reaches out and grabs it. And yet we know that scripture says there is none good. There is none righteous. No one chooses God. No one seeks after God. No one understands. Paul says the foolishness of, of God are, 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 or the things of God are foolishness to those who are perishing. So the question is, how do we choose him? We only choose him because he first chose us. And if we have a question about that, then we see in verse 4 that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You know what that means? If you're chosen in Christ because you belong to him and you, you, you have trusted in him, he chose you before the foundation of the world, before you had an opportunity to do anything to prove yourself. What could you have done before the foundation of the world? Not existed? That's what you did. You didn't exist. No one existed. Nothing existed. And God chose by his beautiful plan of redemption to, to make a particular people to present to Christ as his bride, the church, for the pleasure and the graciousness of his glory. 
I remember as a kid, I used to be fascinated with the book of Revelation. And I grew up in that culture, you know, like they had all those movies about the mark of the beast. And I don't want to get the mark of the beast. I don't want to accidentally get the mark of the beast, you know. And there was a lot of that, that scare tactic type things that were going on. And I remember my parents would take me and, man, I was scared. I mean, I was petrified that I was going to wake up one day with a barcode on my head. And I remember reading in Revelation about the Lamb's book of life. And I imagined God as this clerk in heaven writing down the names of people that walked the aisle and came to Christ. Oh, Johnny, September 5th, came down the aisle, written in his name in the Lamb's book of life. Oh, Susie gave her life to Christ for the third time at youth camp, name written in in the Lamb's book of life. But then I began to read and understand scripture and, and it's actually not written that way at all. In the book of Revelation, it's stated that the one who conquers is the one whose name is written in the Lamb's book of life. The one who conquers. Revelation chapter 3, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. I will never blot out his name of the Lamb's book of, or in the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Notice John says, and and, and this is Jesus speaking, I will never blot out his name in the book of life. Well, how do you blot out something? Well, it has to already be there. So there is this person that, that John is envisioning already in the future, and his name is written in the book of life, and he has conquered the world. He has lived and endured through suffering and trial and temptation to the end. And Jesus says, I will not blot out his name from the land's book of life. Why? Because it was first written before the foundation of the world, and he has conquered and he has endured until the end. Revelation 13 Speaking in the negative, all who dwell on the earth and worship the beast, everyone whose name has not been written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. It says it again in Revelation 17. So the great beautiful understanding of this doctrine is that it was it, it was so enacted before God ever created us, before he ever created the world. And yet the Bible says, and Jeremiah makes this clear, that he yet knows us. He forms us in our, in our mother's wombs, and he knows us. In a very humble state, Charles Spurgeon says that I believe in the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure that he chose me before I was born or else he would never have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. Which leads me to that special love. Verse 4 says, Even as he chose us in him, before the foundation of the world that in him is in Jesus and this is the great glory of Jesus Christ in election is that Jesus Christ is the elected one 
He is the one that is the elect of God. He is the true chosen one. In Luke chapter 9, one of the, the, the booming voices of the Father coming down, uh, uh, giving clarity and validity to the, the ministry of Jesus, he says, this is my son, my elected one, or my chosen one, listen to him. And so it is actually Jesus who is the elected of elected, and we are in him, thus we are elected in Christ. We could say that we are the chosen of the chosen one. Because in love, the father loves the son, and thus wanting to present a people to the son for his glory, he presents these people and chooses them for salvation, thus his love is set upon us, a special love. And that special love is a love that is generated solely and purposefully from God to us without us ever loving God beforehand. I've heard it best explained, men, that you can love and be, you can have a, 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 a healthy affection and love for all people in the world, including other women, you can have a respect for them. You can show kindness to them. But you will never experience a love like you have for your wife. A special love. And that is the way by which Christ, the father loves the son. A special love that they have shared throughout all of eternity. And in the same way, he has placed undeservedly his special love upon his people as a husband loves his wife. And then what will he do in this electing love? Verse four, that we should be, or that we should become, it says, holy and blameless before him. That we should become holy and blameless before him, that, that in this electing love, God saves us, First he chooses us, and then he saves us, and then he transforms us, and ultimately he glorifies us. Paul says it best in Romans chapter 8, for those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's the making of us holy and blameless. Why? In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and those whom he predestined he also called and those whom he called he also justified and those whom he justified he also glorified. Folks, that's your life in a sentence in Christ. that you are predestined before the foundation of the world or chosen, that you are called by the gospel, hearing it and believing it and trusting in it, that in that you are justified, not in yourselves and in your own righteousness, but in what Christ has accomplished. And lastly, you are glorified. When Christ comes again, you will be made new. You will be given a new body. You will be raised as Christ was raised from the dead. And that is the transformation that his people go through without losing one. 
There has never been a time that a caterpillar formed in its cocoon comes out as a cockroach. There is never a time that the design of the caterpillar that God instilled in his creation where a caterpillar comes out anything other than a butterfly. It is exactly how God designed it. Each individual transformation is exactly the way that he designed. And similarly, each child of God chosen before the foundations of the world will be transformed wholly and blameless to be presented to the Lord Jesus as his bride. And so you may ask yourself, well, Nathan, if this is true, then why me? And I think that's a great question to ask yourself. Why me? Because when we come to the answer of that, when we come to the true answer, is when the the doctrine of election humbles us. Because the why me, it, it has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with the love of God. That it's in love, at the end of verse 4, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. What an amazing picture of, of earthly adoptions that we can see in our lives and in our world. Where that picture is demonstrated for us on a spiritual plane. Where we are loved by the Father when we did not belong to him when we were his enemies and we were invited in to sit at his table and to joy the blessings of the kingdom. It's as if the king walks out into the battlefield, he crosses the battle lines and he chooses and and, and takes people with him back into his own kingdom, into his own palace. And he says, come and sit with me and live with me and be my son or daughter. That's the beauty of election. Well, who were we? Well, we were his enemies. Look at chapter 2. We weren't just his enemies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. This is so important for us in the doctrine of election. As people want to conform and contort the doctrine of election to say, well, yeah, God elected us after we elected him. After we chose him. God looked before the, through down the corridor of time for knowing that we would choose him uh, in, om, in all his omniscience. He knew that we would choose him. He knew that we would uh, make the choice. And thus we are elected. That's the argument. Well, that's confusing to me if in chapter 1 he's talking about election and then in chapter 2 he dives even deeper and he starts chapter 2 by saying, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He doesn't say you were, uh, you were, dis- you, you were disabled. He, doesn't, he didn't say you needed to be resuscitated. He says you were dead. And you were dead because of your sinfulness in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passion of our flesh. Is there disputing the word all? Absolutely not. We carry out the desires of our body, he says, and the mind, we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God. 
but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which, it, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So God is doing this work within us. He is conforming us and he is transforming us. Not because he sees a future action that we make because of his great love. There's a lot of emphasis placed on the foreknowledge of God in this argument. Romans chapter 8 verse 28, I read this earlier. And we know that those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Well, what purpose? Verse 29 tells us what purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Let me tell you why the word foreknow there does not mean God looking at our future action and making an action based upon that. Number one, the word foreknowledge means not to know some action beforehand, but to know intimately beforehand. Just as Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore a son. Just as in Deuteronomy it says that there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Or Jeremiah says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Those are, those are words that, that spill over with the intimacy and the love and the, 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 the relationship that God has with us even before we know it. But even more importantly, foreknowledge is ascribed to Jesus as the Savior and Redeemer. Acts chapter 2 says that the, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Listen, if, if that becomes the, the definition of foreknowledge for us, then that means that Jesus became the redeemer because he chose himself to be the redeemer and the father was standing back looking going, okay, well, I see that Jesus is gonna become the redeemer, so I'm going to elect him with my foreknowledge to be the redeemer. That's a broken trinity, people. That's a disfellowship within the Trinity if Jesus is operating outside of himself and the unity of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. No, the foreknowledge of God is that it was planned and that there was an intimacy between the Father and the Son, thereby making him or, or electing him as the one who would come to die for sinners. Peter says the same thing. He, meaning Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for your sake. Foreknowledge is about intimacy. And if, of course, foreknowledge means that if God decides upon our decisions, then that gives us something to boast about. And Paul says in chapter 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your doing. It's a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. So the Lord knew you, and he chose you to be his people 
And that manifests itself into a life where, where we're living sinfully and we're living rebelliously. And then one day we, 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 we understand the gospel. The gospel awakens our hearts and our lives to understand our sinfulness and our need for him. And we are, are, are made alive. And that is real, and that seems real. And, 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 and so we, we oftentimes, outside of understanding the Bible, we, we, we realistically think about that, and we go, well, I chose Christ. I see this time in my life where the, that I, I walked down the aisle, or I made this decision, or I came to understand the gospel. And we don't deny any of those things. Because you do choose Christ. He tells us to choose him. He tells us and commands us, repent, confess the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. But we would acknowledge that the doctrine of election teaches us that you repented and you confessed and you believed because God chose you before the foundation of the world. So what about your free will? Does God control you and make you love him? Does he force his love upon you? Listen, the difficult, doctri- uh, the difficult uh, doctrines of election, they dumbfound the human mind. And when we think about human responsibility and the sovereignty of God and salvation, they oftentimes appear to contradict and, and it, it, it overwhelms us at times. Because the Bible teaches that we are responsible to choose and follow Christ. Judas was responsible in in choosing to become a traitor against the Lord. He was responsible in taking the money from these Pharisees and these religious leaders and telling them where to find Christ. He was responsible and he bore the guilt and the shame of that so much so that he killed himself. He was responsible, and yet God, through his sovereignty, worked through that sinfulness and that rebellion to bring uh, about the plan and the purposes of redemption. And so the doctrine of election works alongside the truth of the human responsible person. We cannot deny them both because they're both there. Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Paul did not say, if you are elect, stand up. He didn't say that. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. He's speaking of the doctrine of human responsibility. Therefore, every human on this earth will be responsible before God for placing their trust in Jesus Christ, which is called faith. The difficulty that we find is that this doctrine of faith that we have in Jesus must be granted to us by God Because without his power to believe, we are dead spiritually and unable to choose him, as we looked at in Romans chapter or Ephesians chapter 2. 
John MacArthur says, we cannot stand the tension of mystery paradox uh, that, that we are inclined to adjust what the Bible teaches so that it will fit our own systems or, of order and consistency. He says, but that presumptuous approach is unfaithful to God's word and it leads to con, uh, a confused doctrine and weakened living. He says, it should be noted that other essential scriptural doctrines are also apparently paradoxical to our limited capacity. Scriptures that talk about both the work of human authors and yet the very word of God. That Jesus Christ is fully God and fully man. That salvation is forever, yet saints must remain obedient and persevere to the end. That the Christian life is lived in total commitment and discipline of self, and yet it is all of Christ. Such inscrutable truths are an encouragement that the mind of God infinitely surpasses the mind of man and are a great proof of the divine authorship of Scripture. He says, it's not that God's sovereign election or predestination eliminates man's choice and faith. Divine sovereignty and human response are integral and inseparable parts of salvation. Though exactly how they operate together, only the infinite mind of God knows. So in the end, As your pastor, I encourage you to submit to the doctrine of election, not because I believe in it or because other great men throughout Christian history have believed in it. I ask you to believe in the doctrine of election because Jesus teaches it, and he's your Lord. And through inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writers of Scripture throughout the Bible have taught it. And you have to do great theological gymnastics to overcome it. To describe it away. And so instead of bending and contorting your theological mind in such a way, submits to just this truth. That God is sovereign and he rules all things. And as he rules and reigns over all, he will accomplish his purposes even in salvation. We didn't even get to look at the, the great chapters of Romans 9, 10, and 11. I would encourage you to study those on your own and, 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 and soak in the richness of, of the doctrine of election there. But in doing so, submitting yourself to what the authority of God's word says even if it's not quite understandable fully. For Psalm 115 says, our God is in the heavens, he does all that he pleases. And if he pleases to save some and not all, then we must submit to that. And in application for election, we find great hope that what God planned, he completes what he started in you, he will finish. Directly linked to the doctrine of election is the doctrine of perseverance. That brothers and sisters, you and I will endure to the end because what God started before the foundation of the world, he's not going to stop midway. He's not going to wind the clock and allow that just to work on its own. He is carrying us through to the end. 
And as MacArthur said, the, the beautiful paradoxical truth is that while he is carrying us along, we must still strive. We must still agonize and struggle in this life. And yet knowing that there is a hope that we can never fall away. Philippians 1.6, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Number two, we could say that not only do we have a sure hope, but we have, should have a humbled spirit. That the doctrine of election does not produce arrogance, as some may state, but instead humility. Because when we understand election truthfully, then we understand the great depth of our sin by which God rescued us from. That as his consistent enemies, out of nothing of our own goodness or value, God loved us and he saved us. And that should humble us. I love how the Apostle Paul throughout his letters makes that apparently clear how vile of a sinner he was before Christ rescued him. He says to Timothy in chapter 1, I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Man, I pray that you feel that way today. So we have a sure hope, we have a humbled spirit, and we should have a devoted or a devotion to the mission of God. Because the doctrine of election does not lead us to not evangelize, as some critics state. Instead, if we know that God has chosen a particular people for his glory, then we need to go find them. We need to go out there and, and spread the seeds and, and cast the seeds far and wide, knowing that God has chosen some. As he told Paul in Corinth, there are people, my people, in this city. And so Paul understood that in 1 Corinthians. He says, I planted Apollos waters, but God gave the growth. So neither the he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So we're going out and we're sharing the gospel, not knowing who is truly going to be saved, but that takes away the pressure on us as the disciple maker to produce some results. We're just out faithfully sharing the true gospel, and we trust God to do the rest. And lastly, it should lead us to worship. In three different places in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul makes that connection. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which, we were, has, which he has blessed us in the beloved. Verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glorious grace. In Ephesians 1.14, 1, 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We can say that salvation is of all of God without apology because it is for his glory. We could say that he is ruling and reigning over all who are saved because his rule and reign over this entire earth is for his glory, including those he saves for himself. And it's why we exist for his glory. And so let me challenge you and encourage you to meditate and to think upon these truths. Please ask questions of us as, as you wrestle through these things. I know in my testimony and many others, these doctrines took years to understand. And to, to say that we understand them fully would be arrogant. <laughs> but know that they should lead us to worship Christ and all that he's done.